This is the EWN Podcast Network. Architect Doug Burge of Burge Architects Malibu is with us to talk about the myriad of options we have to choose from for the architectural style of our new home. Welcome to From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. When interior designer Jana Rosenblatt had an 80-foot tree fall on her house, she saw the opportunity to create the customized home of her dreams. From Disaster to Dream Home provides you with the information and resources Jana wished she had during her rebuilding process. Now she's sharing with you the expertise of leading architects and home builders and the newest products and materials on the market. Here's your host, Jana Rosenblatt. Welcome back, home builders and remodelers. Today we are speaking once again with Doug Burge, the AIA lead architect and owner of Burge Architects in Malibu about selecting the style and substance of the design of a new home from the ground up. In past episodes, we spoke to Doug at length about where to start when you're faced with a rebuilding project after disaster, and then how to determine and understand your plans and budget. You can go back and check out all our previous episodes at www.fromdisastertodreamhome.com. Doug. I was so excited to have you as a guest a few months ago on one of our earliest podcasts that I launched directly into our main topic of our podcast, which is after the disaster hits, what's next and how we're going to pay for it. Now, as I've begun going through the steps of rebuilding with our listeners, I want to be sure to include the creative side of not only rebuilding, but of creating our dream homes. What I see in your architectural designs is a passion and true understanding of the California lifestyle, both incorporating and contrasting with the environment and taking full advantage of spectacular ocean and mountain views. What I also enjoy is the huge range in architectural styles from Mediterranean to traditional, to rustic, to modern and contemporary. In addition to more conventional building, you're also introducing and designing with prefab construction methods and featuring the most updated fire resistant materials, which I'm looking forward to talking to to you about very soon. Doug, as the owner and founder of Burge Architects, did you open your firm with a primary architectural uh, design style and philosophy? Well, it's interesting you ask that question. I mean, you know, this was over 30 years ago when I was <laughs> you practicing. Back then? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do remember back then. Excellent. You know, most people obviously had worked for somebody or another architect when before they started their own company. And that was the case of myself. My my uncle was uh, actually a very uh, notable architect um, from Orange County, and he had about a hundred person firm and their specialties were you know, hospitality and, and they were doing churches and, and community colleges and office buildings and really big projects. And so I actually was able to work with them most of the time I was during college and then about four years after college. And then my, my cousin's also an architect. Um, so we have a little bit of architecture in the family, but that's very cool. You know, I realized it's kind of an opposite part of a question because I realized actually working for my uncle that um, I didn't necessarily want to work right away on bigger type projects. I felt 
my personality and, and my hand can be better suited on maybe some more, I, I say close to hand type projects or, or more on the residential side where you're dealing more with the owner versus dealing with corporations or dealing uh-huh. with, you know, charities or dealing with some of these. It's interesting because now at this point in my life, I'm actually doing those projects. But um, when I first started out, I figured, okay, I wanted to do residential, custom residential, not necessarily just, you know, multifamily apartments or condos, but custom residential. And, you know, between going to school and learning about architecture and understanding the different styles, um, what what's happening is that I remember these very clearly is that most of the homes that I was doing back in the day were, were Mediterranean style. And uh-huh. I say Mediterranean style in a loose form because I really mean to say something is really plaster with a tile roof. Right. And from there, it evolved into traditional houses. And a few modern homes, but it wasn't until the last about 10, 12 years ago is when we really are doing a lot more modern homes and modern homes that I equate in something like a flat roof and, and more clean lines and, and something that that's not traditional, certainly. So, but, you know, I mean, there's not a lot of architects that can move between the venues and move between the styles. And, and so it's just maybe because I, I feel like I've been able to do it and I, do one and I hit it built and people love it and I'll do another one. Right. So it's, it's just back and forth, back and forth, but really started out being traditional. And then nowadays it's more modern. And actually nowadays we're doing full circle hotels and restaurants mm-hmm. <laughs> back to the commercial stuff. So that's so kind of where we're at. If, you know, I think that the modern run, leans itself toward the uh, commercial in, in a lot of different ways. So do you think that change um, 10 to 12 years ago was because of your taste and ideas or because of what clients were asking for? Well, it, it really was. I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, because you have a lot of cities that, that they even have requirements to say they have to, they have to be traditional. They, they can't let anything be on a contemporary level. And so what, what we've been able to do is it was a combination of, of requ- uh, clients asking for it. And it was a combination of basically, um, something that I've always wanted to do. And, and so it, it's kind of like a hybrid because the, the, the modern homes that we're doing are not what you would typically think to be like a stark white modern with, with no textures or tones or, or warmth to them. So I knew that I wanted to create something that was, I guess you could say more warm modern. And that's the style that we've actually adapted today. And do you think that, um, did you start to incorporate around those times uh, alternative building materials? I know that you've been working toward um, less flammable materials and things like that for a long time. Has that was that part of the kind of modernization of the style? It really, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it, it, it's act. You know, when you're literally thrown into the fire, as they say, you know, oh, you right. tend to react a little differently. You yeah. move a little quicker. Um, you know, back in actually 1990. 493 actually was one of the first bigger fires in Malibu and we had actually bought a burnout lot and we were lived in a community in a neighborhood that that had about 200 homes burned down so it was back in the 90s is when I first started getting involved more I guess you could say uh, like working with sustainability and working with something uh-huh. that, that's more adaptive in the case of fire resistant construction you know prior to that pretty much and they teach this in school is that you've got you know, the situations with, um, you know, uh, you know, learning about, you know, solar and energy and everything else. Um, you know, that's a whole nother, you know, topic, but, but that's something that as far as energy consumption, that type, 
that's something, you know, we would be doing, you know, anyways. Um, yeah. So, I mean, back to your question, I mean, it was really just having an understanding of, you know, the different types of, of, of you know, you can build a building, but then you start to understand, you know, you got to pay the bills to heat it and cool it. You got to have look at longevity. You're going to pass it along to somebody eventually mm-hmm. where are the materials coming from. You know, it's like, even like, I guess you could say the same thing as like eating. I can't imagine all the stuff that I ate, we ate in the seventies. I mean, it's right. certainly not the same things we eat today. Yeah, it's that's just a great analogy. The, food, the, the food industry kind of caught up, even though, you know, I, who doesn't love a good Swanson dinner every once in a while, but you certainly, <laughs> if, if, if you found <laughs> out today, <laughs> you know, what, what was in the ingredients, you may not have a Salisbury steak every Friday night. Right. Uh-huh. So, um, but it's interesting in the, in the building industry, you know, and it's again, the more and more, agencies and, and government and, 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 and consumers start looking at way things are made and whether it's like you say, whether it's the, the foodstuffs or whether it's the building materials, you know, there, there was a revolution almost because in, even in having a lot of things all of a sudden start to be built overseas and then start to use those products in the way they're going through their testing agencies. And now we have this kind of world wide um basically in the in our industry the design industry we're not just okay what's happening in los angeles and and maybe i might know what's happening in in nevada but i certainly had don't even have a clue what's happening in singapore right so nowadays you know we're a click away from knowing what all these other products are and are they available for our uses and so it's it's actually the world trade situation really did help especially in the in building industry, help guys like me have more more and uh, better and sustainable choices. Yeah, and it's interesting because with that knowledge, like with the food analogy, once you know better, it it's hard to ignore what you know. And with the building materials, it's, it's um, affecting the contemporary style and appearance of your work, which has been so interesting for me to observe. Um, I'm sure that many of your clients have been planning for an opportunity to design and build their homes for many years, but for someone rebuilding after losing their home in a fire, it can be an unwelcome and shocking process. As the architect, you begin the creative and hopefully joyful aspect of the designing of their home with people who are emotionally and physically exhausted. How do you help your clients begin to experience the creative process? Well, you know, it, it's, I had some clients like the day after the fire, they came into my office said, I've always wanted to, you know, hire you. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I, I lived in that old seventies ranch style house and we bought it. We had nothing to do with it. And I, I didn't like it. I mean, thank God the fire showed up and it kind of helped me, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. you know, move my dreams forward. You know, that was right. maybe a 10 or 20% of the case. And then, yeah. You know, but a lot of people, I mean, they were done. They didn't have any plans to, to change. They owe their life possessions. And that's most of the things you actually lose more, not necessarily the, the box or the architecture, but you lost your life, your your yeah. compilation of life's possessions. And that, that was the harder part when you have to deal with that and the and the and the memoirs and the memories and you know artifacts and everything else you, we all have and you know can't imagine losing, right? So but it was, you know, generally a great attitude, you know, it's like it all related to, I mean, what kind of insurance they have, which always makes me even reassess now, what do I have in my current insurance? Because yeah. if, if a catastrophe did happen, you you better be prepared that you can pay for it and rebuild yeah. it the same way that you had before. Mm-hmm. So that is a very key part of how certain people were able to jump back in because they knew they were covered. Like, okay, yeah. 
I may have to, I may need $3 million to rebuild, but I only got one and a half. What the heck are we going to do, honey? I mean, kind of thing. So it's, it was a lot of different factors, but the emotional factors, you know, are always a big thing. And I'm used to that anyways, when you deal with custom home, being an architect, you know, you're dealing with, and you ask the questions, you try to involve the family. Um, so we've been, we, we really kind of ramp that up um, and, and just trying to be open-minded and, and, and understanding, and, you know, yes, I had some things that burned down and our office was halfway burned down and I lost right. a lot of valuable things out of my personal office. Yeah. Um, in, in the back of my office, but, you know, not the whole home. And so losing everything, um, you know, there was even stories of people that were, were renting a home and then they're waiting for their home to be built. Like they're, you know, they've been renting a home for two years. Their homes yeah. have been under construction for two years, let alone the two years it took to design it. The, the Woolsey fire hit. They had to move out of Malibu. The home that they've been designing and building for two years burned down and the house they were renting burned down. Oh my God. So could you imagine like oh, you're about yeah, to yeah, move yeah. into your dream home and then all the your stuff is with you in this rental home mm-hmm. and that also burns down. So I don't, I mean, talk about therapy. Um, I, I don't know how to, you know, yes, people haven't necessarily died and you haven't lost any pets, but just that's a lot of stress. And so yeah, the PTSD yeah. is... Is to today, and we're actually three years on the Malibu fire coming up in this uh, next uh, November. And, you know, I, I still marvel at how my clients are treating this process. And we're under construction on most of our projects. Some of them were just starting. But, you know, it, it's like a whole new thing. They don't teach this in architecture school, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how to deal right. with trauma. Oh, right. Except, you know? absolutely. And that so, would have to be clerical school. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it is, you know, yeah. and I, I am a religious man, but I, I, I no one teaches you know, the basics on that. So that's just, it's like part of the profession. So anyways, that that's, that's what's happening on that. But the people are, they're excited. They let's do build better, newer, stronger. Um, why would we build the same way? So they're, they're up for any and all. So my job is to be equipped with having, okay, there's a new toolbox I'm going to open right now that has all these new things in the toolbox that I didn't have four years ago. Uh So let me show you what we have here. Not necessarily cost anymore, but just maybe a better method to do something Uh too. So when you're first meeting with the fire victim as a client, do they have an idea of what they want their rebuild home to look like? Um, What is the process like that you can take them through for, to decide on a style and aesthetic? Well, it's interesting because most of my clients, I'd say 80% of them, they wanted something completely different because, you know, most people don't buy a home and hire an architect. Okay. Most people just buy the home that was given to them. They may have been remodeling it, but it's still the basic shape for the most part. And they raised their family there and they, and they weren't aesthetically really interested or that wasn't really part of their life. It wasn't important to them. So now you have this, okay, I got I to I gotta hire an architect and I got to go design a house. So now they're really going to get into it. You know, I was glad that everyone was kind of into it. You know, otherwise it's just me doing a spec house, but it's a custom home. So they're going to go and, and whether they're married or they're single or they divorced or whatever, they're going to talk to their family and they're going to figure out, okay, what do we want to do now? Open, open book, you know, mm-hmm. and then even the way Malibu changed their codes, they didn't have to build on the same footprint. So that old weird footprint, the home was in a weird place on your property. Uh-huh. As long as you can prove what square footage you had, you can build 10% larger. 
you put it over there where there's a better view or whatever. Yeah, so they, they, right. they looked at this as an opportunity, not an obstruction. Mm-hmm. And so from, from starting from nowhere aesthetically, how do you lead them through the process of, um, you know, whether they want a, a contemporary farmhouse or a traditional Cape Cod or Mediterranean or um, even a shipping container? <laughs> um, do you have favorite styles that you're that you're working in now that you um, that you're suggesting, or are you looking to bring them on a process of their bringing you the inspiration somehow? Well, you have to marry all these things because you know it is their custom home. It's not like I'm building in a out in a development where a developer hires me and I got to do three different floor plans and three different styles and you moved it somewhere in Valencia or Irvine. Right. So, you know, you, you're rebuilding a customer. So they usually kind of know what they want. I mean, we, uh-huh. I'll give the example of, we, we had actually built a home in Malibu park for my wife and I, and it was a beautiful kind of a Vermont farmhouse, I'll call it. Mm-hmm. And Lovely. very simple shapes, very beautiful, very simple, not a large home, 3000 feet. It burned down, but there was new buyers and the new buyers contacted me and they said, well, we really want to, we love the floor plan, uh-huh. but maybe let's have some taller ceilings and maybe we'll make a modern barn feeling. So I was walked it the other day and now they have the metal roofs and they have this clean wood on the outside and a very open floor plan. So they made a better version of what I had before. And that was it. That was one of the easier clients versus the uh-huh. ones that had this very odd, very low ceiling traditional house. And they said, this is now they're older. They've raised their family already. Now it's just really for the older, the older couple. So they said, let's make something maybe not as big, but maybe more modern, maybe less maintenance, maybe cleaner, maybe because we're going to travel. I'm not going to be in this house like I was before raising the kids. I'm going to be there every day. So there's different programs, same family, but different programs because they've evolved, right? They've evolved as a family. So the style really became that. And you have to work it out with the budget because, you know, certain types of homes are more money to build than another style. Mm-hmm. And uh, we go over that in the beginning and then you try to be close to the budget, but you know, things like shortages and COVID hits and other things happen that all of a sudden things are 25% more expensive to build right now than when we started two years ago. So, you know, yeah. you try your best and they understand that it's not my fault. It's just that, you know, it's just a different circumstances and listen, they may not have the bottom line more money. So then we have to look at maybe they only can build parts of this house and then they'll build the other parts later, even though we'll permit the whole thing. So is there a, a, a difference between starting the design process with a client who's um, lost their home versus someone who's been dreaming it all their lives? And it sounds like, do you kind of get them into your office and, and just start to talk about all the possibilities and show pictures or, you know, how do you start to put your finger on where they're going? Well, I mean, you think about it. I mean, you know, we're not the only restaurant in your town, right? So they have a choice before they, they decide what to go get a meal that night they're going to either go to chinese or they're going to go to american food or they're going to go to mexican food or whatever they're going to do you know they've already looked at other architects and they've Uh they've looked around and they decide okay i'm going to interview two or three architects not that you're going to go sample a whole bunch of food choices before dinner um but you've actually you've actually researched it a little bit so when they get to me they've already kind of know what what i could do Uh and you know yes i always challenge myself and not do the same thing every time because that's just being a better architect is realizing that, you know, it's easy to maybe do the exact same way to do a certain detail, but maybe to push yourself to do something different. So I look at it as a challenge, keep them excited. You know, the process is long, you know, I'm a hand draw guy. So I try to sketch things out, 
Mm-hmm. I, I try to, I lay everything out for them. I, uh-huh. I, I'm really thinking exactly, okay, this is the way you wake up in the morning. What do you do? How do you go to your bathroom? How do you get dressed in the morning? How do you, what time do you usually have breakfast? I mean, I'm asking all the personal questions because I'm trying to set the day. Because what, most people have a routine in their day. Sure. I mean, most yeah. people really do, even though they say they don't, but they yeah. do. Um, the good news is we, we typically wake up, which is a good thing. Um, yeah, and, and then we get the alternative. exactly. And then, <laughs> and then we go to bed and hopefully we wake up again. So, um, it, it's, it's just, what do you do between, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that, that 16 hour period when you, when you're awake, um, and, and how does that relate to your house? And so it's just, and again, I've been doing this for over 30 years. It's not like, you know, it's like, it's just second nature to me, but it's more of, something that I find intriguing and it still gets me excited because I, I do wake up at five every morning and I start drawing uh-huh. and my brain starts solving problems from the night before. And uh-huh. so I, I kind of take my attitude and I'm always a positive guy. And I try to relate that to my clients, even though they may be stuck or they don't really know where to go. And my job is to help them push them to the next, you know, next level so they can move out of their rut. Uh-huh. So a big part of my interior design process is lying in bed at night and at the end of the day, imagining myself at the front entry of the home. And I picture myself walking through it and I visualize the future interiors. And I learn a lot from that process. And it sounds like you do a lot of that, that you're thinking it through, thinking about what it feels like to live in that space. And then being able to, um, the, the hand drawings come first in terms of demonstrating your ideas to the client. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm fanatical about the actual layout, the way things flow and the dimensions uh-huh. and, and, and where things should be. And if you look at the end of a hallway, I go visit friends and clients. I said, well, somebody didn't really think about that. You're, you're walking out, you look at the end of the hallway and there's a laundry room. So I can see all the messes. It's like, well, why do you just move the door over three feet? And I would look at a piece of artwork. Uh-huh. So I'm really fanatical about the layout. Uh-huh. And I, even though I'm drawing it by hand, I'm, I'm picturing what it's going to be when it's built. And so I do have a three-dimensional ability. So we were just talking a little bit about um, how you're visualizing the interiors and what it will ultimately look like. And you're getting those committed to some sketches that you're sharing with your clients. How long into the design process are you starting to uh, make, uh, put it down into permanent, you know, form, like a real CAD drawing of the plan and the um, elevations? Well, I do ask a lot of questions at the beginning. And so I'm able to, get that part going. And I do try to put my designs basically, you know, I start within the first two weeks of meeting them and try to put transitions in the papers. I, a lot of times I have to wait for consultants and certain geologists or engineers to kind of give me some information or tell me if there's some slope issues or if there's utility issues. So I do have to wait once I sign a contract, wait for a lot of consultants. And then when I have all that information, I can put it together. And then within, you know, a few days I can come up with a concept. Yeah, and how do you find that the personalities of the clients affect the design process and the design itself? Well, I mean, it affects it a lot. I mean, you know, I even tell clients in the beginning, if they're a married couple, I said, I really need you guys to decide which one of you is in charge of this project. Uh-huh. Because, you know, I, I can't, I, I learned my lesson one time, and I know you could appreciate this. Yeah. You know, you had a meeting all day with, let's say, one of the spouses, and you thought and you spent two hours and you met and you, just, and you went through everything. And then you, then on the way home from work, the other spouse calls you. How did the meeting go? 
I said, I- I'm going to tell you some things, but I'm going to miss some things. And then you're going to get mad at your spouse because I missed some things. I said, I can't do this. You know, you have to have one spokesperson that's really in charge of the family uh-huh. that's representing the project. Okay. So that, that was kind of early on. I know you probably had similar situations, yes, but interesting uh, process. yeah, yeah. And, and so it's, it's, it's something that, you know, you, you want them to be involved. I mean, you want them to be engaged and, you know, I have some clients that are fire rebuild, vic, you know, victims and they're building a house and this, this show, she's an 80 plus year old woman and she lives in New York. And I haven't even met her yet. And I've already designed her house and it's about to be built. So I haven't even physically met her, uh-huh. but that's rare. Yeah, but that's COVID. Right. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. but we're we're getting close. And with the power of renderings and the power of the computer nowadays, she knows exactly what she's getting, uh-huh. um, or at least I hope she is. And yeah, then when right. we start construction, you know, and at some point here, when's vaccinated, and then we're going to be able to, you know, get a little more reprieve on that. So anyway, that that's the personality part. But I, I really like working with people um, and and try to get them, you know, comfortable with what they're getting. Uh, and there's going to be surprises at the job site. We we have that all the time. And you know, what you, you tried to explain, no, the windows are only this high off the ground. And then when you get a belt, they go, well, why are they only at that fire off the ground? I said, well, we kind of went over that, but I'm not going to beat it with a, with a, with a stick, you know, but we can maybe fix it. Let's lower the window a little bit here. So, you know, you do what you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, at the, at the framing stage, you pretty much have to really, you know, be open to be able to consider people's, you know, what, what they're finding once they really can see something 3D. Now, I think that you should introduce us to your doggies because they're clearly a well, part this, of this is, program. This is one. That's a Skeeter right there. Uh-huh. Where is he? That's Skeeter. Oh, my goodness. Skeeter? Skeeter. Skeeter's the, Skeeter's the pug. Uh-huh. Where is he? Anyways, that's one. And then there's... Others, there's another pug, and then there's a great Pyrenee somewhere around here. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, but of course, I, you know, we got the, the one time that we're doing our, our, our thing, the gardeners show up, right? So, of course, Murphy's, Murphy's Law says whatever. But, whatever. Um, whatever. And luckily, because of what we've all been going through over the year, people are very flexible about what they expect in terms of uh, professional outcome. I think it's more human scale, which has been great. Exactly. Well, yeah. And, and I think it just relaxes everybody. I mean, you know, everyone is you know, we were so corporate before and there's no way you would ever think about having a meeting over a screen. And now it's like normal. And, you know, it's like, if you don't have to go and waste gas and travel across town, just accomplish the same thing on a screen, then let's do it. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure you and I would love to meet one day in I person, but, yes. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's kind of like, well, if that works out, that works out, but it does, it's not necessary. Yeah, you know, I may true. meet a client in the very beginning and not meet them till the end. You yeah. know, it's just, that's just the way it is. Yeah, it's extraordinary what we're able to do now um, without being in person. Yes. So, um, on the tail end of, of the style conversation, I just want to talk a little bit about the role of the interior designer. At what stage in the design process do you bring in your interior designer um, into the conversation? Well, I really asked this question right when I'm signing my contract because I need to know who's making those decisions. Uh-huh. And if you have somebody, like if you've been fortunate, you've done this before, or you have a friend that you're probably going to use, and I want to know that, so let's work together because, listen, I don't have the only trumpet. I don't have the keys to all the ideas around here. 
you know, I want to involve the people that are actually going to be the design team, the, uh-huh. the interior designer, the landscape uh, designer, might be a lighting designer. I need everyone in the beginning. And if that's a real luxury, it doesn't typically happen. A lot of times, you know, we'll, we'll be halfway through it and then they'll bring someone designer in. And but we do have to know that like you can, as you know, in your business, there's designers that they're really good at picking out materials and such, but they don't draw and they don't detail. And so somebody has to eventually get those, that those materials and those tile details or cabinet details to the builder. So otherwise they don't know what they're doing. Um, so we have to determine that early on, but no, I, I'm very open. We, we have about, I'd say three quarters of our jobs are done working with designers and the other quarter we do in house and we do the interiors ourselves. Yeah. So yeah, I know you have an interior designer in the office. So um, when, when you're able to bring her aboard, um, how early in the process might she be conversing with the clients? Well, in the very beginning, I mean, because we're making decisions, we're laying rooms out and we're setting right. furniture in these layouts We're we're, we're setting everything where, you know, what is, what does the ceiling look like? And what are the ceiling heights? And what do we think about the lighting? And what are we, where are we going to put, you know, the access to the closets and should we do walk-in closets and or regular wardrobe closets and, so yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll work that out. We're working with a client right now, pretty high profile client. And he's in the Bay area city and the landscape architects in another city, but we have our zoom meetings and we just all figured it out. So Doug, now that you're doing so many uh, contemporary uh, construction methods and some, and so the style of your work has become uh, so diverse, but in a more contemporary vein, are there some things that you don't want to do anymore? Or do you kind of feel you need to leave them behind you? Yeah, I mean, there's, we had done early on, you know, uh, and I, we even have, even during a fiery bill, we were asked to do some pretty traditional homes, you know, white brick traditional homes and with, with higher pitch roofs and other things. I mean, I, I'd like to do them and I, I really liked this particular couple. I really wanted to help them. So I, was able to do that style and that's actually under construction now and I can't wait for it to be built, but uh-huh. it's not my preference. I mean, the way I'm my preference actually right now and I'm actually doing it is because I am doing, I am licensed in Montana, Wyoming and in Utah and um, in Idaho and I'm doing more mountain type projects. I'm exploring different construction materials and not necessarily by climate, you know, working with different climates uh, the other thing that I'm doing is obviously doing with our shipment container projects, you know, these, the, the climates they're going into from extreme desert climates to other climates, you know, they're, they're, I can, I can adapt there. So I'm, I'm actually wanting to be more involved in projects that are challenging. Um, so I, maybe I haven't done it yet, but then I'd like to show them that I can. Uh-huh. And so that's what intrigues me versus going back and maybe doing something traditional where I'm not being challenged as much. Right. Yeah. Reinventing the wheel as opposed to carving yourself a, a new one. Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. And so, and, and that's what I do. I've got a number of projects on my boards right now. And, and, you know, I have a certain way to design things and clients call and I say, Hey, listen, I love that overall design. We can push this and push that. Can we do this? And so I really, I'm very appreciate that. And, you know, and um, I am using different materials from the Northwest and applying those in, in Southern California and vice versa. So I'm liking that I'm able to to travel around and 
and work on a number of different projects because we're all learning from all those projects versus just sitting in a chair and only uh-huh. doing certain things. That, right. that monotony would be driving me crazy if I had mm-hmm. to deal with that. Very interesting. Yeah, I think this is a good place to um, stop this episode because we're going to do a whole episode on some of your amazing um, forward-moving and forward-thinking building styles. So I really thank you for being with us today. And uh, I'm going to have you back on really soon with Jennifer. Yes, that would be great. I look forward to it, Janet. Yeah, thank you. We have left you with a bit of a teaser of a future episode when we will speak to Doug again, as well as Jennifer Hopple, AIA lead architect and president of the Burge Architect Firm. Burge Architects have been on the cutting edge of new designs in prefabricated container and zero carbon building for residential homes. You can get a head start on this information at their websites, www.buaia.com. And if you go to our website, www.fromdisastertodreamhome.com, you can sign up for our mailing list so you never miss an episode again. And don't forget to leave some comments and ideas you have for future shows. Thank you for joining us on this episode of From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. Each week, we bring you time-tested practices and the latest trends through conversations with top professionals in the building industry. You can find other episodes of From Disaster to Dream Home at EWNPodcastNetwork.com, as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and most other major podcast streaming services. Need design help? You can contact us or find out more about our guests at fromdisastertodreamhome.com. Until next time, let us guide and inspire you as you create the home of your dreams. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. 
If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.